Hello listeners, thank you for downloading this episode of the 50 Shades of Planning podcast, which is brought to you in association with BECG, the Built Environment Communications Group. My name is Sam Stafford, I'm a town planner, and I'm recording the intro and outro to this episode from home in Rippenden in West Yorkshire. This episode, listeners, is slightly different from previous ones. You will have spotted, unless you have been living in a cave this past week with no contact with the outside world, which doesn't actually sound unappealing, to be fair, that the government published a growth plan on Friday the 23rd of September, with implications for the DCO regime and introducing a new investment zone concept. The following day, Saturday, DLUC published additional information about investment zones. Links to that material you will find in the description. Friend of the podcast, Simon Ricketts, hastily convened one of his Planning Law Unplanned Clubhouse sessions for Tuesday evening, to which I, along with Ian Thompson, Shelley Rouse, Nicola Gooch and Jonathan Easton, was invited to contribute. They all kindly agreed to record the session, such that some of it could be used for this episode. You will hear then some thoughts on what we know and don't know about the growth plan and what the implications for planning may or may not be. I'll be back at the end for a little bit more waffle, but for now, over to that conversation. If I kick off, um, just to set the scene, obviously on Friday, we all saw the uh, growth, growth plan, uh, 42 pages or so, which is obviously much shorter than uh, some of the uh, documents we've seen from government recently, the uh, levelling up white paper, for example, but uh, this was all meat. Um, so what do we take from it? Well, um, uh, we're really focusing on the measures in the plan to uh, help expand the supply side of the economy as set out in the executive summary um, uh, to uh, try to achieve uh, a two and a half percent trend rate uh, for growth um, uh, for the country. And uh, as set out in the executive summary, uh, the growth plan sets out action to unlock private investment across the whole of the UK, cutting red tape to make it quicker to deliver the UK's critical infrastructure, make work pay and support people getting onto the property ladder. And then there's a specific reference to uh, investment um, zones. So um, I- I'm not going to say... Uh, anything really at this stage about investment zones because Sam is going to go into uh, those in uh, detail uh, immediately I stop um, speaking but we had both the uh, the growth plan itself and what it says about investment zones plus there's a fact sheet and then um, 9.30 a.m. on Saturday um, there was then some additional information on investment zones in England, which was published jointly by the Leveling Up Department and um, Treasury. So those are the um, three documents. So investment zones, we'll hear from Sam. Um, There's a section on planning, and it it talks about the government needing to accelerate housing delivery, refers to the fact that planning permission was granted for more than 310,000 homes last year. Um, up 10% on the previous year, but further reform 
needed. So uh, the document says that later this autumn, that classic uh, civil service uh, term, uh, when does autumn finish? Uh, just before Christmas, I think. The government will set out its vision to unlock home ownership for a new generation by building more homes in the places people want to live and work and getting our housing market um, moving. And uh, the government's full proposal will be set out in due course. There's a section on planning, which uh, talks about the UK's planning system being too slow and fragmented. Uh, it, it announces that new legislation, uh, the Planning and Infrastructure Bill, and it's an open question as to what the relationship of that bill with um, uh, our much-loved LERB uh, is actually going to be, the extent to which LERB is now going to be subsumed within a, is going to be um, withdrawn and, uh, and aspects taken forward in the new bill or you know what the position is going to be um, and that bill will uh, uh, address uh, barriers by reducing unnecessary burdens to speed up the delivery of much needed infrastructure and there are four one-line bullet points reducing the burden of environmental assessments reducing bureaucracy in the consultation process reforming habitats and species regulations and increasing flexibility to make changes to a DCO once it has been um, submitted. And particularly in relation to the first three bullet points, we really are gagging for the detail uh, uh, because there isn't yet the detail. So there's a section on infrastructure, which talks about prioritising the delivery of uh, NPSs on a, a range of subjects and an action plan um, for reform of the NSIP um, system, bringing onshore wind planning policy in line with uh, other infrastructure um, to allow it to be deployed more easily in England. And you'll remember that at the moment there's the particularly restrictive policy in the MPPF, which basically requires um, promoters to show that uh, wind farms have got uh, community support before they can be approved and at the moment they're excluded from the NSIP regime and there's a number of other um, proposals in relation to infrastructure. So I'm going to stop talking now because that was just a, a rapid overview before we first of all turn to Sam for your views um, first of all about you know the the investment zones proposals but more broadly and uh, I'll also say before you start welcome Nicola we've just done a bit of an introduction and a whiz through the basics you haven't really missed anything um, Sam over to you Simon thank you um, yes yeah, so I was um, I was discussing with with colleagues in the in the run-up um, to Friday uh, what lines we might take on deregulation zones uh, much trailed during the leadership campaign and then much trailed in the uh, in, in, in the run-up to the announcement and I had two suggestions uh, firstly additionality would this initiative result in more land being made available for the development industry to build on than is the case at present if so uh, we should be supportive in principle secondly it remains vitally important that every housing market area in every part of the country has its needs met in full 
and though such zones might facilitate more development more quickly in certain areas, the majority of eggs should not be squeezed into just a few baskets, either nationally or locally. Come Friday, though, um, it became apparent to me, or it seemed to me, that neither of these factors will actually impinge upon or be affected by the investment zone concept. The zones would appear to apply, uh, appear to apply um, progress with the LERB notwithstanding, as you mentioned, within the parameters of the existing system, such that investment zone status may accelerate the delivery of priority sites or wider regeneration areas that have local consent, but, but current obligations on LPAs to, for example, maintain an update plan, uh, deliverable five-year land supply, appear to remain, at least for now, um, in place. Um, as you say, additional information was forthcoming on Saturday um, and that stated that there is a strong expectation that investment zones will bring forward additional development. So thinking about that, one supposes that could be way of either a priority sites or wider regeneration areas or somebody's vision for a new Bourneville or Solterre as this trust trailed them during the um, during the campaign uh, that have not come forward to date and that would be encouraged to do so via the current local plan and or consenting regime because of the inducements or incentives that could be conferred post planning by investment zone status or b planning applications already in flight i'm doing the inverted commas things with my fingers um but then there's a reason why what is being applied for in a planning application is being applied for and to add an extra say 35 percent more homes or 35 percent more floor space seems uh, a little arbitrary though of course the last government had form in that area generally i think um i would draw a couple of observations about what this brouhaha layered on top of the current lerb imbroglio says about the current state of planning firstly Investment zones are to be chosen following a rapid expression of interest process during which the government is in early discussions with 38 mayoral combined authorities and upper tier local authorities, which, as Catriona has pointed out, and I think Catriona is in the room, hi Catriona, for the most part have no planning powers themselves and will not be directly responsible for the local consent that has or may yet be conferred by way of planning permission. These processes, to my unsophisticated mind, do not portray a robust, resilient framework for good public policy and planning outcomes. Secondly, it was striking that the RSPB felt sufficiently moved in response to the growth plan to ahem, tweet a photo of a barn owl with the message that we cannot let this happen. The RSPB subsequently warned that investment zones would be places where anything could be built anywhere and would put currently protected wildlife under threat from bulldozers. Now, detail, 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 as you say, little is known about investment zones, but I think it's safe to say from what is known that there is absolutely no basis for this statement whatsoever. And whilst good PR, it is disingenuous in the extreme to translate disapplying legacy EU red tape as an attack on nature seems highly unlikely that any planner with an application or local plan stalled because of nutrient neutrality, for example, would object to the principle of streamlining, which is the word consistently used, environmental regulations. Further, 
It is not so long ago that most involved in the sector broadly welcomed a move from EIA to an outcome-based regime. There is nothing to suggest a fundamental departure from that broad direction of travel and nothing in the growth plan to undermine it. The fact that planning, this is a bit Sam soapbox territory, the fact that planning has become a playing field on which sectoral interest groups seek to score their own points at the expense of the health of the wider game is regrettable and is as is the immediate lack of ownership of the growth plan because these narratives will flicker persistently, potentially fatally undermining it without anybody snuffing them out. In the end, Simon, what is to be made of it? The test of first-rate intelligence, so F. Scott Fitzgerald says, is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function, which is a line that I included in a blog about the levelling up white paper in February. Investment zones pose the same challenge. On the one hand, if they are to be the priority of this administration, then it is beholden on us to engage with the idea and to mould it into something of substance. I do think it reasonable though to ask whether planning really is the obstacle. I think, for example, not far from here, where I am, of the North East Growth Corridor project, Atom Valley, which spans Rochdale, Berry and Oldham and is purportedly in line for investment zone status. This has been a draft GMSF stroke places for everyone allocation for six years and if that document had been adopted by GM's leaders already, and if a SPD or LDO had been signed off by local leaders already, and if Homes England had been into more interventionist already, then it might have come forward already. Investment zones could be a welcome tool, but there are some dusty old tools in the box already. On the other hand, the FT has quoted Whitehall insiders as saying that the radical nature of the investment zones has been overhyped in terms of the scale of ambition. We've gone from the Oxcam arc to an industrial estate in Cornwall, someone apparently said. Might investment zones go the way of the levelling up white paper? Who is to say, Simon? But hopefully the planning system retains the ability to function in the meantime. Postscript. I was invited earlier in the week to write, the, uh, write an insight column for next month's um, House Builder magazine. So I did cobble together some of my notes uh, for today and start to draft that. So if it did sound obviously like I was reading some of that, then, um, then I was. Shelley, let's, let's turn to you now in terms of, you know, what do you make of this and how is, you know, how are you engaging with it in your role at PAS? So, so I think most of my role this week has been reading it all and, and trying to sort of distill what 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 is this going to mean for councils you know what what's this going to mean in terms of workload um how they operate how how decisions are made so very much my my discussion is going to be a bit bit of a slant on on that perspective um i mean you you're both right you know all the detail is in the fiscal elements rather than the spatial elements um of, of the growth plan at, at this stage um you know my, my sort of musings on on investment zones um there is within the growth plan in the appendices a, a list of illustrative sites and infrastructure projects i mean there's quite a lot of road projects detailed in in that list um but but essentially that they're all sort of existing projects and existing sites that have some form of uh, existence within the planning system so 
it, it, you know, it feels like these investment zones and, and the growth plan relating to the spatial elements it is around increasing pace of delivery. And it's about a kind of mechanism for, for sort of unblocking existing items uh, rather than, you know, have, having a new list of, of lots of stuff that we don't know about, you know, at this point in time. I think the other thing that struck me about the illustrative sites included with, with the independencies is they're all fairly sort of compact and discrete areas um, rather than, you know, kind of large scale swathes. So I think we'll we'll have to wait and see what the appetite is for the sort of scale of how these investment zones could, could operate. Um, <clears throat> I think the other thing I've been musing this week, you know, sort of personal musing is you know the 38 areas that have been invited to consider an investment zone under the expressions of interest stage um they're all upper tier level um and you know it's it's very clear that having an investment zone isn't going to be mandatory it is a expression of interest at this stage and i think my personal musing is is really around the kind of interesting dynamics um that that might emerge you know upper tier authorities have historically had that strategy, strategic uh, level role. So, um, you know, in some ways investment um, uh, zones kind of, it, it makes sense to be at that scale. However, much more recently, you know, we've seen that strategy making um, being, de you know, de decanted and cascaded to the districts uh, through, through plan making. Um, and investment zones, you know, feel like it's going to push that strategy set setting kind of, you know, back up the chain. Um, so I think there's going to be lots and lots of collaborative working between the tiers of authorities um, is, is, is going to be needed um, and, and making sure kind of every, everybody's on board because it's going to be the upper tier uh, level that sort of have the final say on on whether an investment zone is, is, is going to happen. Um, I think the other thing I've I've been thinking around is is how they've got the potential um, to to make us fall in love with employment land use again. Um, you know, we always see employment land use as, as like the poor relation to housing, uh, and I think these really have the the potential to kind of bring a much better focus on employment. And I think we've we've kind of lost that in planning recently. Um, you know, I, I had a look at my local area uh, my you know the potential nearest investment zone to me and that that was um ebsfleet development corporation and their social media posts um on the investment zone w was all about their employment plans uh, for their latest phase of development and how it was going to be great at kind of unlocking job potential um so i, I you know i i wonder where the appetite um for deregulation within a, an investment zone where housing is going to be involved you know what what the appetite from local authorities going to be it, it feels like that's the area where legal challenges um you know that the risks m might be higher um so very much you know housing is the kind of untested element of 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 these investment zones you know we've got lots and lots of learnings in the industry from from enterprise zones from from dcos from uh free ports you know we've kind of got a well-trodden path on how these tools could be used for employment growth it's housing that's the untested element um i know at paz we've done uh, a lot of work on free ports i've heard investment zones called free ports 
on steroids. Um, so uh, I don't know whether that will stick. Um, but some of the key lessons, you know, we've learned on working with the authorities that are three ports uh, is around the importance of getting planners around the table at early doors uh, and making sure that councils take the time to make sure that they, you know, governance structures and lines of dialogue between uh, all elements of an authority are kind of in place. So really doing that work to make sure in the internal governments uh, happens, which, which links to the fact that, you know, a lot of the implementation of, of the growth plan and the investment zones, you, you know, th just because there's less planning, you know, in inverted commas, um, you know, doesn't mean that planners and councils aren't going to have any work. It just means that all of the work and resources is going to be front loaded you know, there's still going to be the need for councils and authorities to make the decisions on, you know, where uh, investment zones are going to be, um, you know, to what degree there's going to be deregulation. You know, there's there's a lot of optioning of deregulation within those sites and areas um, kind of touted within the plan. And that's going to need lots and lots of um, balancing of evidence and delivery potential, um, as I said, between those those two tiers of authority. So there's still lots and lots of work that's going to be needed. Um, you know, I think maybe that, you know, there's no planning, so no planners uh, will <laughs> not come to fruition. Um, and then I think, you know, the last musing I had was, and it might be a very unpopular opinion, um, that actually kind of deregulation and introducing streamlining and kind of flexed areas of, of policy, you know, isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, we, I, I haven't come across a local authority planner who hasn't at some point said, you know, actually, when that policy was adopted, when it was in place, uh, when that, you know, plan was, was finally agreed, um, you know, to, to a year down the line, you find out it 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 does have uh, you know restrictive unintended consequences and can inhibit something coming forward, uh, and and I, I I do think you know there's probably a place uh, within the current system for a streamlined and 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 a more flexible approach. Uh, it will be you know the proof will be in the pudding. It will be the degree and scale of these investment zones. Um, but I actually think if if they are sites of the kind of compact discrete areas that we're seeing in the list of illustrative sites i think they they could be quite a successful delivery mechanism um we'll have to wait and see just to th throw in a few quick thoughts um before before we uh, go on to hear from Ian and then um, Nicola and, and then um, Jonathan uh, and then everyone else. Um, you know, we really need to know, and it'd be really interesting to hear from people what, um, you know, what we think is meant by the government when they talks about, when they talk about deregulation, uh, you know, how radical do we think they are looking to be because, you know, we might have thought, oh, well, they wouldn't dare to do this or that. But, you know, having seen the rest, the, the fiscal side of what they're doing, I, I, I suspect that they are really trying to move the dial on the supply side um, in time for the, for the election in two years time, to be honest. Um, so, you know, what it's actually going to look like, the extent to which they can piggyback on existing statutory powers, 
how how quickly we think in practice um, they can move because many people are listening to this talk of investment zones and thinking actually that would help to unlock my site. So you know how 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 quickly do we think things might happen and how might they happen in practice? And then lastly. You know, the, the interrelationship between the tax reliefs which are being dangled in these areas and the additional planning freedoms, um, because it, it just seems to me that in many areas, uh, um, for, you know, it, it, it's not it's not. It's not the tax that's holding back development. It might be might be other things, and um, uh, uh, and is, isn't it a bit uh, of a sort of blunderbuss to just identify areas and, and give tax reliefs to people within that area, as well as whatever they're going to do by way of um, deregulation of of planning processes. I'm just not really sure why the two are so. Are connected but but anyway I'll, I'll stop there um that was just a sort of sorbet course before we move on now to ian who incidentally wrote a brilliant uh, blog post over the weekend a bologna advisors um piece that i thought was really considered but uh, over to you ian well thank you for that um praise simon not sure it's uh, entirely warranted um but unfortunately since turning 40 i've got nothing better to do on a saturday night than write about um, government growth plans. Um, as you say, you know, the, the report is up there on the website. And, and to begin, I just wanted to share a, uh, a quick anecdote. I had a, a text exchange with a family member over the weekend who read that same report. And his first thing he said back was, valiant effort to find three positive things to say about it and avoiding the use of the word corruption. Uh, I mean, I'm inter- I mean, it's interesting that the, the Chancellor does have the look of a scolded prefect this week which is pretty unsurprising because he's managed in this first two weeks to decouple fiscal and monetary policy after 25 years of relative stability since the Bank of England went independent. And given that 30-year government bond levels now 5% plus, that is quite an achievement within just two weeks. But I think the first thing to try and get across before I, uh, I go through some of the detail is my main issue with the growth plan as it's been written is it shows a complete lack of imagination or rigour. I mean, there's nothing in there about what it is the government is actually going to try and tackle and intervene on. So there's nothing, you know, no real detail on the green economy, research and development, making it easier for foreign and direct investment, um, or about investing in alternative infrastructure. The idea of supply side, uh, or rather, sorry, the idea of trickle-down economics with the odd little bit of supply side economics thrown in is very, very odd. And the other part, of course, is the extremely odd timing of the announcement, because this is a government that's been in post now for just two weeks. You have it it, it being launched immediately before a Labour Party conference and just a week ahead of its own conference. Now, clearly, the government needs to do something on uh, energy intervention and dealing with people's people's bills. But at the same point, you know, putting in place a mini budget which goes well in advance of most normal budgets, I just found extremely odd. And really, that's, that's the place to begin, which is, you know, this is, this is a massive budget. This is, without doubt, I mean, I'm now, I was born in, sadly, 1982. Um, this is probably the largest uh, budget since at least being uh, been an adult. Um, 
and I've even referenced on my uh, report that it's probably the biggest budget in terms of uh, tax cuts um, since under the Heath government in 1972. I'm not going to touch upon tax cuts within here because, I mean, look, that's been well trailed elsewhere. I think there's a consensus around, you know, why introduce tax cuts at a time of um, huge uh, uncertainty within the economy and, in, and, and, frankly, people's finances. But I do want to touch upon the first element, which is there are a couple of things in here which are okay, which actually the government are right to focus on. So the first one, stamp duty reform. Um, so, and again, stamp duty being uh, stamp duty threshold going upwards. Uh, so the threshold at which first time buyers begin to pay it will be increased to £425,000 from now. And the maximum value of a property which first time buyers leave can be claimed also increases to £625,000. I prefer it if stamp duty was completely abolished, uh, but I do think that you know any kind of move to eliminate its effects should be welcomed. I think the government were right to do that. Uh, secondly, you know the, the the government's continued a theme that was that I mentioned, I think, on one of the previous podcasts on uh, leveling up and regeneration uh, around trying to encourage pension funds to invest in high value companies. Because at the moment, there is a a huge amount of failure in the regions for banks and traditional sources of finance to invest in those companies. And it often means they end up looking for alternative sources of finance, whether through the FTSE RA markets or whether it's through um, quite punitive uh, loan terms with other mezzanine providers. Actually, I think getting um, pension funds in there and making it easier for them to invest in businesses, absolutely the right thing to do. And finally, I've never understood the love-hate relationship in terms of onshore wind and the fact that onshore wind is actually properly sponsored within the plan as having a future is actually a bit of a hurrah moment. And and you cannot have a future energy system in the UK uh, without a well-developed renewable system. And so uh, those are the three things um, that I will give the government credit for. But clearly that's significantly outweighed uh, by the other side, which is what is wrong with this growth plan in its in its current guise and away away from tax there's a few bits that there's i think let's i'm going to put into two main themes the first theme being things that i think are fundamentally incorrect and the second theme being the unknowns that are currently within the system which frankly people on this call and the industry need to grapple with uh, to make the best possible case for so the first one which is a huge gripe of mine decarbonisation I mean we, it's literally been 10 months since COP26 since was, there were tears on stage and people saying what well, an international effort it was to try and get countries to commit to new net zero targets and for a, um, a, a recommitment towards international decarbonisation and 10 months later you have the North Sea Transition Authority now given the sponsorship of handing out 100 new oil and gas licences uh, in the North Sea now, clearly, there is a lot of debate around energy security uh, at the moment. Clearly, the, the uh, war in Ukraine is uh, having a huge effect on gas prices and gas supply. But it is an utterly ludicrous and really, really irresponsible thing to do that in an era of decarbonisation. I mean, at the same point, you know, the government had an opportunity, if it really was serious about decarbonisation, to invest in things like retrofitting homes, which is something I covered on one of my previous podcasts a couple of weeks ago, would have cost far less than the tax cut that was introduced. And instead, you don't really have an energy policy and you're actually 
uh, introducing something that's going to add carbon um, to to the UK uh, uh, to the to the UK economy, which means it's even less likely for the UK to meet its net zero targets. I find that utterly utterly ludicrous. Secondly, it talks about uh, the uh, supply side reforms. Very little in there on skills. The only real bit of meat on skills within that plan is around trying to open up the market so that skilled migrants can come back into the UK through certain sponsorship routes. And in fact, this is what the, the plan actually says. It mentions about the government continuing to consider further options to encourage people to stay in the market for longer and other immigration interventions along the introduction of global talent, high potential individuals, scale up worker and global business mobility uh, routes. I've never heard of those routes before, but that is what the government in effect is pushing on. But for the government not to mention anything on skills and about trying to get people into industries that are crying out for, for new talent, particularly construction, manufacturing uh, and the like is, uh, again, utterly ludicrous. But then the major bit, which is around the unknowns, and you've already hit one thing, Simon, which is around, well, it's talking about that this new um uh, the planning and infrastructure bill and, and the new line, which is the liberalisation of the planning system, because, of course, the planning system, of course, it needs rescuing. Uh, no sarcasm. Um, and nobody's clear on whether that means the, the ripping up of the, the lerb and its associated puns um, or, or whether it's um, going to, in effect, these these new points within within the plan being subsumed within the well have the government got on with the regeneration bill uh, really that that's one of my key key beefs with this which is if you if you are in a local authority or working on a local plan what are you expected to do at this moment in time because you've got a number that have already uh, down tools awaiting government guidance and yet you have yet another government intervention which in effect stops any kind of development on primary legislation which could help accelerate local plans to come forward and frankly that lack of certainty is acting as a real throttle on industry if you look at the recent reportage of listed companies so it could be house builders master land developers commercial developers REITs they all point towards planning headwinds as the system um, currently operates and that is one of the main impediments to growth as far as those companies were concerned and yet, rather than dealing with that and trying to bring some kind of certainty into the system, frankly, what's been announced within the growth bill acts as a break. Sam's already touched upon investment zones. And yet there's a fundamental lack of detail within those to what investment zones actually will be. The one thing I would advise people, though, is to try and make the best of that within the, any kind of um, schemes that they're actively working on. And so, therefore, you know, I've heard, you know, as, as Shelley said, you know, someone described an, uh, investment zones as enterprise zones on speed. You could probably describe them as enterprise zones on acid, frankly, the way they're currently being described. But that they, they could provide a useful policy lever dependent upon what is actually required within that landholding. So if I look, for instance, if, I, if I've got a scheme, say, in the north of England that wants to bring forward advanced manufacturing or any kind of high value uses, I would be lobbying local authorities and, and, and the mayoral combined authorities or the LEPs in those particular areas to work together on joint submissions with government to ask for enhanced capital allowances. Because there's one thing that did work under the um, enterprise zone system in the last decade. It was frankly put in tax relief towards capital equipment because that was seen by you know people in aerospace industries and others 
has been a massive benefit to those businesses, which meant they could reinvest some of that money elsewhere. Um, business rate relief, I'm, I'm slightly less keen on, in all honesty. But clearly, the other points that were mentioned, things like enhanced structures and buildings allowances, employee national insurance contribution relief, stamp duty land tax. And again, it, it depends what works for them. But clearly, I think the way that the growth plan has been written for investment zones, it's almost as if the government has said, look, we're not entirely sure ourselves here. So therefore, why don't you come forward with your plans and try and make something of it? And so whilst uh, the, you know, the lack of detail does great on me, there is also an opportunity there for the industry. I don't want people to, to lose sight of that. I think that the final bit, Simon, before I uh, uh, blessedly move this, this debate on, is there's a lot of other things within there that are also subject to reserve matters. And just to try and, you know, I'll, I'll prattle through these very, very quickly. First on, uh, review on making the tax system simpler, further reviews of um, research and development tax reliefs. Apparently, there's going to be a vision to unlock home ownership for a new generation. Well, what about the existing generation? Further plans to support digital rollout and the detail and the level of deregulation for the streamlined mechanism for securing planning permission in proposed investment zones. And the main thing within each of those elements is there's no timeline given for any of those points. You made the um, uh, old gag, you know, the, the civil servants speak, more detail will be in the autumn. For some of those things, Simon, some timescales haven't even been given. So what does that mean then? It means that um, it's, you know, for a plan which has got a very modest outcome, and its, and its outcome is it's trying to get the UK back on a, a keel where it delivers 2.5% growth every single year. Given the amount of government borrowing that's going to be, in effect, put towards a number of the measures within this plan, its potential outcome is really very, very poor indeed. But given where, where the government is pushing things around investment zones in terms of you know, planning changes and so on, it really now is up to industry to lobby and lobby hard with councils, with mayoral combined authorities, and with other stakeholders to make the changes that it expects to see. And I think it's genuinely one of those opportunities for the industry to, to frankly, take government's hand and to make the changes that are actually required. Nicola, uh, someone else who wrote a, a fact fabulous uh, blog post on on LinkedIn which covered this but also covered the um, retained EU law revocation and reform bill the title of which sort of um, uh, caused me not to delve any further but you did so um, uh, there's some thoughts that are probably linked to the growth plan that you want to mention about that as well but over to you. There are, actually. Um, I've decided to call that bill Ruler, by the way, because it, I can pronounce oh, Ruler. Um, the, so I had a number of thoughts about this. Um, the first one being, oh, no, the government's ruined another of my holidays. Um, they have a tendency to do these major announcements where, whenever I happen to have booked some annual leave. Um, this was another except, uh, prime example of that. So there was a certain amount of cursing going on as I was uh, writing um, over the weekend and uh, and looking at it. But the growth plan itself, I think most of the key points for us have been covered, which are geographically based planning liberalisation has been tried before. Um, we've had two versions of enterprise zones. 
local development orders, planning permission in principle. Um, none of them really, apart from possibly the enterprise zones in the 1980s, have taken off. Um, and if investment zones are going to be an exception to that, then they're going to need every part of the sector in the system to pull behind them. And at the moment, I'm not seeing, although it's very, very early, that the level of engagement and investment from government into all parts of the planning sector um, that would be required to make that happen. Uh, Shelley, I'd be interested in your views on this because you mentioned the bizarre dynamic about who they're actually talking to for investment zones. And it does seem to be, to me, slightly strange that the government's conversations are happening with mayoral and upper tier authorities only, um, when the people who will be most affected by the proposed liberalisations, um, the setting aside of local planning policies, the um, streamlining of um, Section 106 and infrastructure payments so that they focus on essential infrastructure only, which is not defined. Um, affordable housing is mentioned in relation to a general fund Simon, but otherwise is remarkably absent, apart from in various Telegraph reports where um, over the weekend where it's been suggested that affordable housing requirements will either go entirely in investment zones or be scaled back to a low fixed percentage. Um, now, I try not to take the Telegraph as a, a paper of record, um, but it has been remarkably accurate recently, so we'll have to see on that one. Um, there is a lot of unknowns there. And we do need to engage very quickly to try and get to, into a shape that would work. But that engagement needs to include everybody. And at the moment, I'm not sure there is necessarily the, although again, <laughs> Shelley stepping on your toes here, the resourcing in local authorities to enable them to do that effectively whilst carrying on with the day job. Um, those thoughts aside, I do want to talk about ruler um, because ruler is important. And one of those really quite scarily important pieces of legislation, which in the planning world is slipping under the radar, because you have to piece a lot of things together to figure out what it does. What it essentially does is place sunset clauses on a very large amount of retained EU law in this country, which is either the end of this year, or if the government actively decides to extend it, the end of 2026. Uh, which is the 10-year anniversary of Brexit. Now, what is encapsulated in that retained EU law is a very large proportion of our environmental legislation, which I'm not going to go into um, any detail on because, frankly, I haven't looked at it because I've got an environmental partner who does that for me. Um, but also bits of planning legislation, such as the Development Management um, Development Management Order, used to be the Development Management Procedure Order, um, which is our bible for how we are to process planning applications um, and covers rules on everything from pre-application consultation, who needs to be served notice that an application is going in, um, who can appeal um, what and when, condition discharges, all of those are in the development management procedure order. So if that disappears by accident, then the entire rule book for how we deal with planning applications and the planning process itself is accidentally gone. Um, but also includes things like 
the 2010 version of the building regulations and um, permissions in principle, um, brownfield register, secondary legislation, um, environmental impact assessments, uh, strategic uh, environmental assessments, Habs regs assessments, all of those are potentially disappearing through a piece of legislation which planners aren't really talking about. Now, there's a lot of talk about it in the environmental community and also amongst my employment law colleagues, but it seems to be slipping under the planning radar, which I'm a little bit concerned about, because if that actually goes through, then we may, it will really, really impact on local planning authorities' ability to process applications um, and potentially significantly shift the legal underpinnings of our planning system without people really noticing, um, which is mildly concerning. I'd love to hear your thoughts, uh, Jonathan. Thank you. Well, can I start with some good news? Because I've just noticed that there's from the 1st of February 2023, um, the alcohol duty rates are going to be frozen. So the devil's in the detail drinking game that we all play every time the government announces some new initiatives shouldn't cost as much as it um, might otherwise have cost. So that's that's a bit of good news. Um, my sort of key take, I, I'm, fantastic submissions from all um, panelists so far but the one thing I just do I, I think Nicola touched on it to a certain extent so did Shelley but the one thing that I keep coming back to every time I hear these grand plans is that there's nothing about resourcing local authorities particularly um, upper tier authorities whose planning departments have been decimated over the last 15 or so years I mean I don't know how on earth the, the system's going to be streamlined we're going to roll out investment zones with little or no affordable housing, encourage an onshore wind, if we don't provide enough resources for local planners to deal with all these um, schemes. So that is a huge omission, in my judgment, from the, the growth plan. And I'm not sure whether it's something that's necessarily going to be plugged. So that, that's my big take. But the other thing I would really agree with Shelley about is that I think if the government's got any real likelihood of being successful in investment zones i think they should concentrate on employment because having promoted a number of fairly large employment schemes particularly logistics schemes some of them in the green belt they are significantly less controversial than homes jobs seem to be less controversial locally and possibly even nationally than homes so a, a test case might be a sensible idea if investment zones are really going to work to have a series of large employment areas um, because they're probably going to be less controversial politically. So those are my sort of my, my brief takeaway thoughts. Hello, listeners. Sam again. So you may also have spotted that the Treasury announced on Monday, the 26th of September, that cabinet ministers will be announcing further supply side growth measures, including changes to the planning system in October and early November. And so I have no doubt that we will be returning to these themes again soon. In the meantime, as well as the growth plan material that has been published to date, you will find in the description blogs from Simon, Ian, Nicola and me. 
My thanks to them and to Jonathan for an enjoyable conversation on Tuesday and for allowing me to share some of that with you. Thanks too to BECG for supporting the podcast, especially Ashley Bellinger for his editing skills. Thanks also to podcast.co for hosting it. If you have enjoyed that episode, do please feel free to leave us a nice rating and a nice review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have not enjoyed it, obviously please do not. Once again, evidence, should it be needed, that planning is not a black and white endeavour. There are at least 50 shades in between. Thanks for listening. There'll be another episode along very soon. Bye for now. (laughs) 